Hey folks, my name is Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, we record the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring stories about progress. In what ways are we better off now than in the past? Are there ways that we are worse off? What is the ideal future? How do we build it? Join us as we explore these questions with some of the brightest minds in the world. Hey folks, today we're sitting in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's kind of a chilly day out. It's uh, November, what's today's date? I don't even know. Late November, heading towards Thanksgiving. I don't know. Pretty good day. Um, Today I've got my good friend Coop with me, Cooper Williams. And uh, Coop is a machine learning engineer, and you've had kind of an interesting career so far. I know you're still young, but um, you've trained in Lambda school, is that correct? Is that... That's right, yeah. So I'm 25. Um, gotcha. I think you're about the same age, right? Yeah, 26, right there. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, yeah, I went to Lambda School for data science, um, and I got hired by Will straight out of out of Lambda School. So uh, that was cool because we actually met um, long before I graduated. In fact, I think it was a month or two after I moved to the area and started Lambda School, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. We met at a Slate Star Codex meetup. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and, and just for context, Coop is probably the most talented machine learning engineer I think I've met. <laughs> Dang, man, that means a lot. <laughs> all my lot o- all my other friends that are machine learning engineers are not gonna, now going to come after me, but that's okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, they got to prove their mettle. <laughs> all right, well, you better start learning jujitsu with us. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Watch your back. Um, so is there anything else I should add on your bio side that people might like to know that might be interesting? Oh, well, I don't know. I'm sure it'll all come out in, in the discussion. I don't know if, if you, if, I don't know. I was previously a filmmaker. I guess that's the main thing is, uh, I was a filmmaker for nine years before doing, you know, touching anything programming. So that's really good. What kind of films were you making? You know, not really films. Uh, <laughs> so I made some short films in college, but the main gist of what I did was a lot of ads, a lot of small business ads. Interesting. That did not make me very much money, um, but they they kept me afloat. That's cool. Um, I basically, yeah, I would basically I was I was like a one man um, film crew. So I worked for a marketing agency that um, that had a lot of small town clients in in Oklahoma. Um, although there were some banks in there, there was a congressman. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and I would just like you know sit down with them and say yeah. what kind of video you want, and we would we would just make it. And um, I sold those videos for pennies on the dollar. Like no, I really, not, I did not know how to sell um, because I you know I was always super critical of my work. Yeah. Um, I I never what I never became the filmmaker I wanted to be, and. You know, I, I ended up just making a lot of educational videos yeah. um, after that because shooting on a set um, and setting that all, setting that up and like um, bringing people in to, to, to be my crew, that all just stressed me out. So I just started doing video editing um, after that. And that's actually how I ended up um, doing computer science was I just got interested in computer science, started making educational videos about that and about economics um, and then I started teaching myself data science and then did Lambda school. And even you, you're an instructor as well. That's right. Yeah. Currently I'm so <laughs> on top of my full-time gig with Tanjo, yeah. um, I am doing a side gig where, um, I'm a teaching assistant at a company called Correlation One and, um, I'm in their empowerment program, which is meant to, um, bring 
traditionally disadvantaged communities, minority uh, students. <laughs> You're hearing <laughs> my, the cat. He's my cat cute. is uh, attacking the microphone. You can toss him off. Oh, that's and, okay. And it's really pleasant, actually. <laughs> okay. He is. He's a sweetheart. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so I'm working with DS4, uh, so uh, Correlation 1's DS4A, DS4All uh, Empowerment Program, um, which brings together uh, 500 um, minorities uh, fellows to learn data science for the first time. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, mostly geared towards like a business-facing, uh, uh, a business-focused data analyst position. Gotcha. Um, so we're, we're getting, we're just getting the foundations really strong. Very cool. Very cool. So I, before we jump from here in video production, uh, and you mentioned, you know, the product wasn't exactly what you wanted mm. as yet. Have you ever heard the Ira Glass talk about this? He's like, no. you know, the real problem with uh, creating art is that, um, you know, the art isn't great, mm-hmm. um, in the beginning or, or like, as you get better, you're like, wow, like, you know, you you start producing and then it hurts because it doesn't feel as good as you know it should be, if that makes sense. Right. You've got this vision, and it's the reality is just crap next to your vision. Exactly. And like pushing through that is like something difficult. But anyway, yeah. Uh, interesting. So, are there, this is really kind of practical, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but are there easy gains to be made if like you're producing a video? Is there, like, where are the, the easy wins, if that makes sense? Is it like uh. quality equipment? Is it, um, I don't know, planning? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the first thing I would say, so the boring answer is audio. Um, really? You can have a terrible, terrible camera. And gotcha. if your audio sounds good, then the audience accepts it as being not cheap. Interesting. So like, it, then I would say that's a prerequisite for making a good video. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and I'll admit, I was never that great of an audio engineer. Never that great of a audio of a sound can get guy. really complicated. Yeah, it's a pain. And but the the thing is that if your audio is bad, that's the first thing somebody notices. And Interesting. They never get out of the feeling of watching a video, right? Gotcha. And never get into it. the 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 fun answer to that is the writing. Um, if you if you just have the creativity and you have a mind to sit down with the you know the person who's paying for it and say, "What do you want? What right. do you, what?" feeling do you want to evoke in the video um also who's your audience of course and what is the emotion for them then that's going to be like where most of your quality is that's going to be where all of the magic happens and your your camera could be crap you know your colors aren't perfect but at least like you're if you're focusing on that emotion you're going to get something good gotcha that's super interesting like i'll i'll tell you an example um so there was a it was a business coach um, who uh, I was hired by to make this video, um, like make a video entry for a competition that was like this international um, business coach video competition. Um, and we entered not only in that, but in just like a general, um, like a general, I can't even remember what, what it was. But bottom line is we entered this competition um, going up against um, some really big companies and on a budget of three grand, I made a video that beat two companies with a combined worth of $73 billion. No way. Yeah. That is awesome. So th- those two companies came in second and third place. And on a budget of three grand, which is ch- tells you how much I was charging. Right, right, right. right. 
I, yeah, I beat those guys in an international competition. Wow. That's so, and, and what do you think, what, what do you credit your success on that? Was it like taking the time to really, you know, focus on the problem or what do you think it was? Well, for one thing, we, we made the video based on a poem that the business coach had written, which That's was cool. just really like, uh, it was really unique. He had put his heart and yeah. soul into it. And, um, and it was about business coaching. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, but it, it had a real charm to it. That's and cool. And we just, you know, I, a lot of the video was um, like royalty free footage that I, sc- like, I just scrounged the internet for. A lot three of Three grand, was, bunch of three grand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was like my B roll. Right? It was yeah. like artistic B roll. Yeah. And then, like, you know, um, and then I shot a lot of stuff on OU campus, which is really pretty. Yeah. And I used like this, this cheap, um, like steady cam gimbal that was only worth 200 bucks and just like really painstakingly like made these steady cam shots. Um, so I basically just, you know, we just made a plan for what we wanted it to look like and then we did it. That is so cool. Yeah. That reminds me, it seems like, um, people in some sense overrate money. You know, the money has this like really weird effect on people. You know, it's like mm-hmm. very, people really like it. They really want it. And it's, but money's just like, you know, pure optionality. It's just like, you can do whatever with it, but right. it seems like ideas are oftentimes much more important, like having good ideas, especially nowadays. Yeah. Maybe more than ever. Yeah, I agree. And, and executing on that. And having some kind of, yeah, causal link between your ideas. Like, you know, this, this, um, you know, this series of images and words is going to evoke a certain emotion in this audience. Like, you know, you're, you're focused on a certain goal. Like money is very generalizing. It makes you think about, uh, you know, I don't know, you're just optimizing for getting money, which is just like (laughs) the broadest goal imaginable. But if you're, if you want to win a competition with a certain audience, you know, that brings out some creativity. Build it to the, to the criteria. Interesting. Uh, so I wanted to move on a little bit. I want to talk about, uh, an academic that you actually put me on to. She's really interesting. Mm. Eleanor Ostrom. Eleanor Ostrom. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about her and why she's important and overlooked perhaps? Yeah. Well, she's less overlooked nowadays. I think, um, she's, she's gaining, getting, uh, popularity due to people like Tyler Cowen, um, who have made videos about her. Um, and so she is the first woman who ever won the Nobel prize. Um, I think recently there was another woman, um, economist uh, her name is uh, she's french uh yeah uh banner g maybe oh yeah um i can't remember her first name yeah i can't remember i think I th- she's married to a Banerjee, if i'm not mistaken. yes yeah and he also won they, they both won the prize that's right i don't know if it's separate together however right i can't remember her name god dang it but anyway so <laughs> oh sorry this is probably pg <laughs> oh, good i think i think that passes so so yeah um anyway eleanor ostrom's the first woman to win economics um Nobel Prize, and she, she you know, struggled against all these institutional barriers to women in economics. Because when she started, it was you know women weren't allowed, literally weren't allowed in the economics. Wow! Field, and she had to go a different route. Jeez. Um, but anyway, her her whole scholarship is about um, the idea of um, common pool resources. So these are resources that are. Um, scarce resources, usually natural resources, but not always, gotcha. um, where it's really difficult to exclude people from using them up. Um, Interesting. So you can think of this as like um, outside of the realm of government, uh, government uh, jurisdiction, 
uh, or, or should I say, uh, uh, yeah, outside of the realm of um, state control and private control. It's like there's a there's a third sphere of society um, when it comes to um, when it comes to resource allocation that's called the commons, and so you can so examples of this are like fisheries, gotcha, um, woods, um, watersheds, uh, you know, like an aquifer. So these are things where some like someone could deplete the resource if they weren't careful. And so what she studied was why are some of these resources stewarded really well? sometimes for over a thousand years um, without anybody depleting them. And some of them are not. <laughs> uh, she starts off, she has this great book called Governing the Commons. At the beginning of it, um, she has this masterful theoretic overview, theoretical overview where she basically says, um, uh, have you heard of the, you know, the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. Um, so just, just to sum it up, like, um, if you have two people who can't talk to each other and they can sort of, they could, they could cooperate without talking to each other. If they, if they did cooperate, they would get a big payoff, but also the incentives are such that if they cheated against each other, then, you know, they would get a really crappy payoff, but they're both incentivized to cheat against each other. Right. Yeah. Um, so she takes that and she says, that's, that's the framework people usually think of common pool resources as being limited by. She says, this is the huge excuse, this is the like number one excuse that um, policymakers use for taking people's stuff and saying, you can't steward this common pool resource, we're doing it for you. And so at the outset of the book, she says, I'm going to show all these examples where you don't have to do that, and people can govern those resources effectively. Wow. So could you give an example of a a common pool resource that was governed well. So I, I, I have an example of one that was governed poor, poorly. Mm-hmm. You think of like Easter Island and mm-hmm. the trees on Easter Island. So, you know, they had the, the, the big statues mm-hmm. on Easter Island and um, they used up all the trees, moving these around. And the problem was when you took away a certain number of the trees, the wind could start blowing them over. Oh. And then eventually it's like, you can't build canoes to get away from Easter Island. And then, oh, like, you know, so Mount Thuzian struggle. Yeah. Uh, so they did a poor job. What's an example of someone doing a good job? Yeah, that's a good governing qu- the commons. Good question. Um, so there was one. Uh, so there were a number of examples that she gives, as well as ones that failed. Um, but one example is um, a... There was a town, it was in somewhere in central, in central Europe, there was a village, I believe the Swiss Alps, um, a village that had a limited amount of grazing area, um, and yet, and, and, and the grazing area was fragile to some extent, and yet they managed to, um, to allocate the, the use of that, those grazing resources for thousands, for over a thousand years. Um, without sort of depleting the resource. Interesting. Um, so farmers basically had a system set up to say who can use those fields when, um, and the crucial thing was they had ways of um, keeping tabs on each other. So she said that she, she says that this is one of the one of the um, most important things is that the people who use the resources can set the rules um, on how how the resources used, and they can also keep tabs on each other and observe that the rules are being followed. So gotcha. if you can see that the rules are being followed, um, then you yourself, you will self-enforce. 
Gotcha. Um, and so there was no there was no government um, like as such. It was just right. it was a it was a horizontal enforcement. That's interesting. That almost reminds reminds me of the pirate code. Have you heard the pirate code? No, no. So the pirate code's really important. So the pirate code is that if you surrender to the pirates, they won't kill you, hmm. and you know they'll just take you back to the nearest port, drop you off. Uh, and it was really important that all pirates uh, maintain the code because if you start killing people when after you took their stuff, then they wouldn't surrender. And it's easier mm-hmm. to just have them surrender than actually go and, and and fight with people and you know the British Navy. There you go. Yeah, that that's that's smart, and that makes sense as a rule. Um, but you do need some like enforcement mechanism so you don't have some one person that goes off off the rails and. That's right. Yeah. You you have to have um, what she calls graduated graduated sanctions, <laughs> um, and it's basically a series of um, like sort of punishments, I guess, against okay. against someone who um, who breaks the rules, and they're usually enforced on a case by case basis by the other people who are using the resource. Interesting. Um, this is one of seven, I believe, um, guidelines that she gives for uh, or principles, actually design principles for um, common pool resources. Um, and so one example of that would be um, uh, logging in Japanese forests. There would be these villages where you know you didn't want to overlog, like yeah. Easter Island. Um, and so there were set times where people could go out and log. And if you were caught by one of your neighbors uh, logging in, in an unauthorized manner, your neighbor would basically demand a certain amount of sake from you. Interesting. <laughs> That's funny. And, and, you know, and that was how they enforced it on a case-by-case basis. Oh, wow. The sanction, you know, it could be a lot of sake. It could be a little right, sake, right. depending on how crappy your, your family was doing that year yeah. economically. Um, but, you know, um, that, that basically helped them equilibrate and successfully preserve that resource. Interesting. Is this somewhat limited by group size? So is there a size where this starts becoming more difficult? Yeah, yeah. This is where you get to the Dunbar number, right? Okay. <clears throat> like 250 people or something is supposedly the number of people that you can know on, know personally gotcha. um, and have like as part of a tribe. I'm not sure how much I buy that. And frankly, I'm not qualified to, to say what the ramifications of that are. Um, but it is clear that, oh, and... You know, and this brings me to think about some of the other examples she gave. In many systems, there were thousands of people participating. Um, gotcha. So one example would be the, um, what, what do they call them, ribbon farms in, uh, in India. Uh, they had super long farms that were irrigated by, um, by one stream. So they were, you, know, you can picture like a bunch of ribbons coming off of gotcha. the river. And... Um, there were thousands of people and each of those systems was like, you know, th- there was a hierarchy of responsibility. Um, each region had its own, you know, officials. So there was just councils upon councils yeah. like sending up the representatives and that all worked really well um, until the British came. Uh, they came, blow it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, something similar. Well, technically something similar happened with Californian watersheds. Interesting. Um, but, I don't know if you would call that several participants necessarily or like thousands of participants because that was more about organizations um, using the water, I think. Gotcha. Interesting. So how did you find Ostrom's work? What kind of led you there? Well, I lived with an economist for a couple of years. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, and basically when you, uh, 
when you live with an economist, um, you learn to recognize incentives. You yeah. learn to, you know, well, I don't know. I shouldn't generalize, actually. Living with this guy. <laughs> this economist. <laughs> yeah, living with this particular economist. Um, you know, we were just really interested in, you know, what are the reasons that government tries to take your stuff and yes. hurt you? And think of how we can, you know, civilly sort of talk the smart people out of that. Um, right. And, you know, and, and maybe how to, you know, you know, get their, get them on our side against the people who don't know any better. Right. Right. Because um, there are plenty of those people in power as well. Definitely. So, so yeah, this is a crucial, I think, a cr- crucially underrated thing in political economy um, is that the role of the commons, the commons is everywhere. There are common common pool resources that are intangible, um, such as like neighborhood goodwill, things like that. Interesting. Um, that are just not legible to state actors, not legible to policymakers. And so they're overlooked and overrun. Plenty of examples of this in governing the commons as well. Very interesting. Very interesting. But yeah, living with an economist, I, I recommend it. Highly recommend it. You learn a lot. Yeah. That's cool. So you talked a little bit about uh, you know government coming to take your stuff. Um, and, you know, hurt people, you know, so generally, you know, our government has a monopoly on violence Mm -hmm. uh, in this country. Do you think that's preferable to other systems? Is that not preferable? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a very sly way of asking that question. I have to say. Exactly. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I've debated whether, like how much of this I should, I should say on a podcast, but you know, I basically believe that people have you know, individuals have a right to control how their bodies um, are used and control how um, their own property is used. And that's just like the basis of my belief. Gotcha. Um, I think that there are probably some holes in that argument, like some sort of corner cases where you might want to take that away from people. But as a general guiding principle, I think it works. And that does seem to be fairly common sense morality, too. I I feel like most people would tend to agree with that. Although I could be wrong. Yeah. And yeah, so this is where, you know, if you take that as um, a really solid position, it becomes a radical thought because it's sort of, if you take that as the root of your political philosophy, then it has very big ramifications for how you live the rest of your life and right. who it is that you want to associate with and, you know, and yeah, the kinds of careers that you pursue. Anything. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um and where was I going with this? I, I sort of lost my train of thought there. But, um, yeah, I think that in general, um, people people think that we need to control others um, because of the coordination problems we were just talking about. Right. Um, they see that things go wrong in a way that um, isn't easy to control. Um, they see that resources are wasted um, sometimes they think that the world is moving too fast. Sometimes they think that the world is moving too slow. Right. And that needs to change. Um, and uh, I can't blame them too much because not everyone's a nerd like me. And so I've sort of dialed back um, the tenor of my, my radicalism. Um, but essentially, I, I think that I, I have faith in um, people's ability to find new ways to coordinate and solve coordination problems. Um, I think that money is still an underrated tool for um, for coordinating, for solving coordination problems. Um, you know, instead of my tribe ambushing your tribe right. um, or getting ambushed and we're both living in fear, you know, we can trade. Right. Um, and we are we're all pursuing the thing that we're good at, theoretically. Um, 
course, in the current economy, that cannot be, that is not the description I would use. Um, but, I, you know, I think that the next step of solving coordination problems is computing. Um, Interesting. Even though I've only been studying computing for like, you know, a couple of years, um, I think that it has profound possibilities for, um, for allowing humans to um, pursue their goals um, in a harmonious manner and, uh, you know, generally, generally coexist in a more efficient way. Right. I don't know. That's a really weird thing to say, but I, I, I you know, co- computing is obviously has efficiency ramifications. Yeah. Co- the, but the coordination problem thing, that's the main thing. Interesting. Uh, and on that front, do you think in general governments have become more co- coercive or less coercive as time has gone on or, or in this current state, do you think they're, where are they on the median? Yeah. I think above, that's not so, it. that's not such an easy question. Because coercion can come in different forms, right? Like, um, there are postmodernists. Okay, so before I get into that, you know, obviously, uh, if you wanted to uh, live out on the frontier, marry whoever you wanted at 15, have like eight kids, right? You know, uh, eat whatever mushrooms you find, yeah, exactly. <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, you know, you could you could very easily do that um, 2,000 years ago in right. many places. Um, it's only like this idea of a totalizing government is very new interesting um and so in that sense we're less free in another sense too um there's like i was going to say postmodernists have talked about um control systems that are more psychological in their in their nature interesting so you know uh, a, a common refrain to political malcontents these days is if you don't like this country you can leave it and right. you can go live in the woods or do whatever yeah, you exactly. want, right? Technically, that's true. It's just not convenient. Right, right, right. right. All your family are in civilization. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there are definitely things that the government will extradite you for. So, you know, whatever. Exit rights are really somewhat non-existent in that sense. Yeah, exit rights. Exactly. So so voice and exit um, are kind of the two crucial things, I would say. Gotcha. Um, and And yeah, governments nowadays don't really make that um, possible for everybody. I think that if you or I wanted to leave this society, you know, raise our fist and and say, screw you, we could do it pretty, you know, we could just go to, I don't know, Thailand. We could go to Chile. I I don't know wherever the kids are going these days. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, the, but, but most people can't do that. Right. So I guess that's the problem is that I see, I see a lot of poverty is being caused by government and interesting. And I see, modern government as chaos in a lot of ways gotcha the the sheer depth of bureaucracy and the depth of mediocrity that is governing us just creates a stagnation and uh, a chaos that um just just permeates people's lives at every level that's very interesting and that that doesn't seem like it was it was always the case right you know you had the new deal all the most competent people went to Washington, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority. They built all these things. Yeah. Um, it's almost like those those libertarian critiques have become more real as time has gone on. Well, you remember the 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 New Deal was largely a make work program, right? That's right. Oh yeah, <laughs> digging holes, filling them back in again. Uh huh. So you know, it's hard for me to really say where all that mediocrity comes from, honestly, because like if you look back at those times it really does seem like um at least at least things were getting built 
Right. Yeah. There's some sense in like these, the people that the bureaucrats could pick a target, even if it was, you know, digging up a hole and filling it back in again and could successfully go do that. And there seems to be much less capability for that to happen now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen Patrick Collison's thing on on how fast things were built. Right, right. Yeah, and but but also part of me wonders if some of if a lot of that isn't just historically historically contingent with respect to technology, like there is actually uh, we actually had a lot of low hanging fruit to pick, technologically speaking, and then we sort of hit the ceiling with that. Gotcha. Um, I think that there is, I think there's an argument for that in in many sectors of the economy. Um, I should note particular examples of that, <laughs> but yeah. Right, right. There, it, it, yes, it, it seems like in certain areas things are hard. Like so, uh, super string theory. You know, mm-hmm. there's like a hundred people that un- can understand it, and that's probably like they probably hit some walls there, right? right? But we have no. You and I have no way of ascertaining whether that's true or not. Exactly. Mm. Um, here, an example of something that's not subject to that probably is education, which is just. You know, I think education has, um, it's been buoyed up a lot by technology. Um, people like kids, adults, they can, you can learn anything on YouTube. Right. Um, just from someone who's really passionate about it. At the same time, um, education has become this, uh, this machine for creating people who don't do anything. Like, like it's not, it's not, it's not aimed at anything. Um, it's sort of this um mindless who's the guy john dewey is this is this deweyan uh system for creating good citizens that is stuck in like a hundred years in the past right um it's not it's not tuned to the human in in terms of the human's needs their communal needs um it's not it, it doesn't keep up with modern technology it's not flexible it doesn't um make itself amenable to children's um children's passions right i don't know i just i hate it so much (laughs) (laughs) a lot of problems yeah and and you've you're you're somewhat working in that area now with you know instruct being your instructor in data science right um how is that different and how do you so do you do curriculum design at all or or and what are you just an instructor not for this yeah for this program i'm not doing curriculum design as such although i i'm making some ad hoc videos just that I'm not even getting paid for. I just sort of like, I see what the students are struggling with. And right. I just like you make help a them. quick video about here's Docker in 20 minutes or like, very cool. You know, here's um, what every Python object is under the hood. Type nice. Of and, um, but yeah, I did, I did do curriculum design for Thinkful, um, which was, uh, oh, it was this spring actually. Wow. That's weird. <laughs> it <just laughs> all blurs like together now. Ago. Yeah, I did. I I wrote a, a supplementary data analytics curriculum for Thinkful, um, and uh, yeah, so I've done some of that. I think that my so part of that was just because I could do it well, but another thing was I just really believe in this new model of education with all of its warts. Like everyone, there's so many so many things wrong with video education, but still. Yeah. Um, the incentives there, the incentives for online learning are so much more free. Um, you can go learn from somebody for free if you want to. Right. Or you can sign up for an ISA, an income share agreement. Yeah. Where they're incentivized to, um, it's a legal agreement where they make a share of your future earnings, which is how Lambda School does it. Yeah. 
And if that's if that contract is in place, then the pe- the person who owns your ISA has an interest in you actually getting a job, which is very different from uh, I, I guess. Well, you went to the University of Oklahoma, so you mm-hmm. you can actually directly contrast them, right? Exactly. The, the experience, exactly. And when I went to when I came to the University of Oklahoma, I was a crazy person. I was obsessed. Boomer Sooners. Yeah, exactly. Boomer Sooner. I you know I was just this kid fresh out of high school yeah. from you know, suburban uh, Boise area um, who is obsessed with theology and filmmaking. And like, nobody was telling me you're doing the wrong thing. No one's telling yeah. me. Like, probably some people did, but like... Not I was, really. I was just, I was just on the tr- this track to get the wrong degree, basically. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, every, the, the school's like, sure, we'll take your money. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. We, we'd be happy to, right? Sign here. Sign on the dotted line. Mm-hmm. It is concerning when we do this to, you know, I, I keep saying this, there's immense social pressure to sign on the dotted line for children. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they get this, you, you sign up a lot of people for a boat anchor of debt, which you can't go bankrupt on. Yeah. I mean, you can't go like, this mm-hmm. is insanity. If you get a car, at least, you know, you can go bankrupt on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, if you're really ambitious, then you get a really big anchor in the form of law school debt. Exactly. Oh, yes, that's right. Even bigger. And they will be happy to have you as well. Uh Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, the ISA and uh, you went through Lambda School, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we have two Lambda School folks that work with us at Tanjo. uh, And we met before while you were in the program. So I Mm -hmm. I didn't have the same experience. But um, with the other other student, uh, it was it was amazing how aggressive the salespeople were. Um, and, uh, Jessica, I'll, I'll call you out. I'm, I'm really happy. You know, it, it was awesome. It was so, it was so inspiring to me, you know, as we were getting them on board and stuff, how she would, you know, she just follow up every day, you know, she's, she's calling me, she's shooting me emails, you know, and I was like, man, the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill would not be doing the same for me. Let me tell you that. Oh man. No. <laughs> the power of incentives, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the university, you know, once, once you get kicked, once you leave, like you're, you're, you're just a name on the mailing list, right? Yep. And Lambda really believes in their students. It's um, really cool. They, they get, they, you know, they have your entire Slack history. They, they can, <laughs> any, any point they can refresh your, their memory on how you acted in a particular scenario. Isn't that right? cool? Um, so like legibility kind of works in a student's favor there, right? That's true. It works two ways. Um, I, that's. It's probably something that a lot of Lambda students don't think about that much. But, you know, if you are really applying yourself, it's yeah. clear. And um, and people will advocate for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think also the good thing about Lambda School is I think they have, correct me if I'm wrong, but more flexibility in curriculum mm. than like someone that goes and gets a BS in computer science. Because, you know, yeah. I, I talked to a lot of BS in computer science applicants and things of that nature. and. The real problem was, you know, it's like uh, Lambda School, they've been educated and they spent a ton of time on the most modern stuff that exists. Mm-hmm. So they're up to speed, like completely right. on modern technology. Whereas, you know, people that have gone through BS computer science, it's unclear whether they can even build anything. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, that drives with so many people I've talked to, like, because if you have a tenured professor who is, you know, the, the tenure professor might be really passionate about right. keeping up with modern stuff and they might not. Yeah. Um, and there might in fact be very few people in that department who want to update the curriculum that way. And because of the institution, depending on what institution it was, whew, like I'm sure the university of Oklahoma 
um, just judging, well, uh, this is not even computer science, but <laughs> their business school yeah. was, I guarantee you, 30 years in the past. And that It amazing. was incredible. Um, there was not a single mention of like Salesforce. Or, amazing. Or anything in that whole, yeah. whole experience. I went to business school. So. Very cool. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, Lambda, by by contrast, you have nine months of full-time, like a 40-hour-a-week education. Um, your, your butt's in the seat, like eight hours a day. And um, you are focusing on the things that um, are most important to do the job. Uh, we learned, we learned uh, some, so like I had the advantage of coming in with some computer science background. Yeah. Um, I had like read a, th- a whole theory of computation textbook. Um, the Interesting. S- Sipser textbook. Um, Do you recommend that? Yeah, it's really, it's really it's dry, but it's really good. It's really good. Um, and yeah, so I had some background in it. Um, I'd also done Project Euler problems, which are like math problems that you do with code. Um, but basically, the the computer science aspect of it is like trying to show you the things that are most used in data science. Um, like learning, you know, you learn like what is a hash map, you make your own. You learn what is a neural network, you make your own from scratch. You learn what are the, um, like how does computer, how does the von Neumann architecture work? And you make your own in Python. Really? Which is not the same as like writing in C. Um, you know, you write your byte string, your, your byte strings as like literal, like Python strings, but it's still like, it gives you a sense of what the computer is doing under the hood enough to function in that job if you have to touch um, something that is performance heavy. Um, so there was just, you know, there were there were a lot of instructors who were constantly, oh yeah, this is another aspect of it. Um, the, the cycle uh, that matters in Lambda School is not a year long, but a month long. Oh, really? Every month they're bringing in a new cohort. So every month they're getting they're getting new feedback from students on that unit they just did yeah. and they're reformulating it right there. That's cool. Yeah. Huge, really rapid iteration. That, that's so interesting to me because it seems like, you know, we were talking about voice and exit earlier. It seems like it's almost impossible to go back and like, you know, go to the university of Oklahoma or the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill on these ancient institutions mm-hmm. and say, Hey, we're going to completely up in this model and do something new. It seems like there's just too much institutional, you know, I don't know, entropy and like craziness to ever reform these institutions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like the Catholic church back in the you know, Martin <laughs> Luther. I don't know. Uh huh. Yeah. I could, uh, I could maybe make a comparison between my, you know, OU's old president and Pope Francis, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you're probably, yeah, I think that's probably right. Like, I don't know. I hope, I don't know. I, I hope that COVID shakes universities up quite a lot and just um, introduces a lot of competition to them because um, their model, like they just, they just need to go down. Like, yeah, they from, do. They do. From a research perspective, like, fine that's great you need you need a university with reputation and clout backing research and funding research um in this educational manner i think that's great yeah but but also um corporate but corporate labs are fully capable of doing the same thing it's just that for some reason in the past 70 years or so um corporate labs have been sort of declining in popularity um and i think that's a real shame and i want to see like I want to see people start 
like thinking of, I don't know, just like stop, uh, you know, glorifying this, this institution that doesn't really have, it's just gone completely off the rails. It is. It's ultimately an incentives problem. You right. Can have, you can have good people at a university, but it's, but if the incentives aren't there, then, you know, it's going to be like your new year's resolution. It flops like that's right. 20% like, yeah, down the road. yeah, exactly. That's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, my big proposal is just change the bankruptcy laws. Like mm. for student loans, loans mm-hmm. just change the bankruptcy laws. So you can it's now just like normal consumer debt, and I think that would fix a lot of the wackiness that's going on. Huh. Well, that that does seem like a really simple solution. I'm curious whether it would work. Yeah, I don't know. We've got this huge lobby that's really against it, though. So I don't know. Yeah, those dang lobbies. Yeah, I tell you what. Um, so I, this brings up another point I wanted to ask you about. So you know. You've told me a couple of interesting anecdotes about meaning and modernity and and it seems like this is a this seems to be a huge problem just like uh you know people have a lot of trouble nowadays finding meaning mm. in their lives and and why do you think that is do you think that has is that tied into technology is that what do you think's going on there is that a real problem even I should say beforehand yeah I'll tell you, this is one of the questions I didn't really prep for. <laughs> That's okay. I saw it on there, and I'm like, Ugh, I don't like, know. If I, I don't know what I think of that. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I think, I think that there is a lack of meaning in Western societies for sure. Um, I'm not well traveled enough to speak to the rest of the world. Um, if Bollywood's anything to go by, you know, <laughs> the Indians have plenty of meaning in their life. That's right. In their lives, and uh, it's Good really wonderful. Um, but. Um, you know, this is like a really widespread thesis that yeah. um, that some magic is lost. Um, I read an article the other day to the actually this morning to the effect of the multiverse theory is destroying culture. Really, uh, because everyone, you know, everyone likes to imagine that that like all the alternative worlds are just going on at the same time. You know, you see that in Rick and Morty, yeah. like this nihilistic sort of comedy that's like, I don't know. It's really funny, um, but it's but it's also like it just takes the piss out of everything. Yeah. Um, and so, I find it difficult to judge this for myself because I come from a really weird upbringing, where um, philosophical and theological questions were like first and foremost. Interesting. Like you could disagree with the concept of God existing if you wanted to, like yeah. where, I, where I went to school, but you had to at least have an argument for it, and you had to have like you know you had to you had to be pondering these questions and um and truly constantly orienting yourself to the true the good the beautiful it was the three things that yeah. you said so part of me thinks that this is why i think i'm so interested in education is because like education is so clearly the vector for which this like any of these things occur um, interesting and I mean that in a very general sense, like like the way that you self improve um, is your meaning, uh, the the your orientation towards your future self, um, I think is in the Western world what it means to have meaning. Interesting. Um, I I haven't unraveled like the human being to say like oh you know this is what matters for the human being like biologically. Right, right. Uh, there's all kinds of things in the mix there, but like. Um, we know that achievement is important yeah. and what is there to achieve in the modern world? Um, <laughs> this reminds me, I'm starting to sound like Cody Wilson. 
Um, <laughs> oh God. But like, what is there to achieve in the modern world? You can build a business. Yes. Um, you can start a family. Um, that's really countercultural. That um, is actually not. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Societies is. that are like that don't last very long. It seems uh, like. Yeah. Japan's hanging in there. Yeah, <laughs> they are. I don't know. Somehow. Yeah. Um, so, you can, yeah, you can do that. You can um, you can discover something scientific. You can make a piece of art. Um, but all these things are like, uh, I want to say the word commodified, but it's common. Um, you see. All over the place. Yeah. We're like inundated with all this cool stuff all the time. Yeah. And anything anyone does. Like, um, I think you mentioned in a call once that you had gone to China. Yeah. Um, a long time ago. And I didn't even pounce on it because I was like, oh, of course he's gone to China. Like every college student I know, has, <laughs> I know is like gone abroad or whatever. Yeah. Like who cares? He yeah. probably did. He probably like went to bars and like met, ja- met some business people. <laughs> exactly. Right. But like, I'm sure you have good stories to tell about China. Yeah. And like the fact that I see that stuff, like that's, that's like common, it changes things. I don't know. Also, um, also I think there is, I don't know. There's a lot. I, I feel like I'm rambling here. No, this is great. <laughs> it, I think there's also a crisis of meaning um, because class consciousness is um, is like it's sort of com- it's sort of over complete in America to, to the sense in the sense that like everybody is super class aware and they know they're like super aware of their position in the world. Um, but it doesn't, t- but it's like they're constantly spinning off narratives that don't really like end anywhere. Um, what am I trying to say with this? So like middle class kids, yeah. um, like, like you or I perhaps, like they leave home um, at, in, in their 20s and then they're starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, not only professionally, because um, they usually aren't joining the family business. Um, sometimes they are. But they're also starting from scratch spiritually. They don't have any any like project that extends before them, and this is why a lot of people will go for like they'll they'll just get super deep into a certain hobby because that hobby is like their connection to the past to history. Interesting. And uh, I I struggle with that because uh, a lot of the people that I hate the most are pathologic i see as pathologically nostalgic interesting <laughs> i don't hate a lot of people but the, pe- yeah. but the people that really get on my nerves um are stuck in the past in my point of from my point of view and yet a connection to history is undeniably important um and and just in orienting orienting yourself towards the future right and that's just a real struggle for a lot of people yeah, I don't feel like I gave you a good answer, but that's my my basic thoughts. No, that's good. It's it's a hard question. It's a hard question. Um, I wanted to move a little bit now and talk about. We've covered this a little bit, but machine learning. Hmm. So you know, what are your your kind of uh, what do you see coming down the pike that interests you? Is exciting? Um, do you think it's overhyped at this point? Do you think? Uh, I and I think people, you know, these words they're very general, and people get you know, it confused with like AGI and, mm-hmm. and things like that. I don't know. Yeah. I, that bugs me a lot. Um, it bugs me a lot that the word AI is thrown around just cause like, um, yeah, it, it makes people think of AGI. It makes yeah. people think of like, Oh, businesses out, out there actually own something approximating a mind. Yeah, exactly. It's here. And, um, 
you know, and, and maybe that hits a little too close to home since I built something called a form brain recently. Um, <laughs> it basically just classifies tax documents. And uh, that was not my choice to call it that. But um, it, it's, it's basically... So I think that... I think that AI, the, the field of AI is special in the sciences because it's so focused, focused on intelligence itself. Interesting. Um, science is, uh, is a project to, uh, like, broadly speaking, is a project to expand our knowledge about how to know things and how to use that knowledge, how to, uh, how to sort of reclaim the outside. Like take something that is out, literally outside of your worldview and outside of your personal perspective, outside of our cultural perspective, and incorporate it. We're taking chaos and ordering it. And I, I like to think of that as intelligence itself. That is like what intelligence is, is, is learning how to bootstrap um, a, a bootstrap a truer representation of the world or, or bootstrap um, like power over the truth or power over reality. So, so what current machine learning systems can do um, is sort of like it's, it's taken such huge leaps, but it's not really, I don't think it's anywhere close to where it needs to be. Um, so Kant, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, he yeah. has like this framework, this threefold framework for like um, how a mind works essentially, or it's like you know how how intelligence yeah. like occurs. It's like one, it has to have some kind of like sensory input to like apprehend like sensory data, and then it, and it, it like orders it some in some basic sense. And then the second step is that it notices invariances in that in that sensory data to sort of um, craft and. Um, to just like recognize objects essentially. Interesting. So just viewed, viewed in many different contexts, here's a thing that I can pick out of the noise. Right, right. And then third, you contextualize that knowledge of objects inside of a, um, a worldview that is linguistically framed. Interesting. So machine learning can do the first two things pretty well. I think the first step only really requires like, you know, um, basic, like it requires traditional computing. Yeah. Um, just to like, you know, to, to get and store data and organize it. The second step is what machine learning is really doing right now. You have neural networks that have that are really good at taking just a few examples of something that is and something that isn't a category <laughs> and then just saying, oh yeah, that's the category. Gotcha. Um, and you basically just, all of machine learning is, an, is just um, various flavors of that the the huge gpt3 model yeah it, it's it's basically just a really complex um really really a really complex way of learning um what positions words usually go together <laughs> in, right <laughs> like, interesting. What, like what order they usually go in it's yeah. it's a it's a disembodied broca's region that cost Super like 10 million dollars to make yeah it's <laughs> right? great so it can it can put words in the in the right order, uh, much like a Harvard MBA can, um, but it can't actually <laughs> like do it can't synthesize new thoughts. Like gotcha. what what is generated from GPT three is not a thought; it's just an ordering. It's just a probable ordering of words. So what needs to happen for machine learning to get to anything, to get to that next step, is 
is the ability to play language games. Gotcha. Um, instead of statistically analyzing the order the words come in, it should be able to play games within games, right? If I just start a sentence saying, um, you know, riddle me this, right? Yeah. I've started a game right. that you know how to play. Right. And like whatever I say afterwards is in the, that context. And, and a true intelligence can do that and learn to bootstrap that knowledge onto something else and grow its, its apprehension. Right. And that's the bridge too far right now. Right. And, and it's not going to take, I don't think it's going to take more like bigger neural networks. That's not the answer then. It'll definitely involve more neural networks, but that won't be the secret sauce. Um, that's, that's really easy to say. That's not even that daring of a thing to say, but like it's, I don't think that if you, I think if you wanted to make something that was brain like using current, uh, you know, current neural network technology, yeah. You would you would need something bigger than the bigger than the Earth. You would need a computer bigger than the Earth. Um, so it might come from like neuromorphic computing. It might come from um, quantum computing. I don't know, but yeah, um, there's there's going to have to be some some phase shift. Do you, have you ever read the Robin Hanson book Age of M? I read like two pages of it just gotcha. out of curiosity. Did you read it? I did. Okay. Cool. Um, do you know much about that? Just the idea, we get really good microscopes, we can tell what's going on in the brain, we just create a computer simulation of actually a human brain, and, and that's how we get there. We don't even have to understand much yeah. of anything. That's one pathway. I think, you know, one, some, one thing I've learned in just yeah. studying this stuff is that there are a lot of ways you could do it. Gotcha. And what it comes down to is, um, what do they call it? The hardware lottery. It's just whatever people happen to whatever makes business sense At and whatever people, whatever you get people stoked about, yeah, that will become the mainstream way to do it. And you're a little interesting. Your, your way might be theoretically sound, but no one's going to follow it. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. But sorry, I interrupted. No, you. No, no, no. That's really well put. I, I think that's, that's an important thing to realize when we think about um, these things. How scared do you think we should be of artificial intelligence? Hmm. Yeah. I go back and forth over that. Um, cause when I first started out, like the whole reason I got into this career was I read, um, this post by wait, but why it's this oh, yeah. famous blog. Um, great blog. yeah, it's a great blog. Uh, super just fun to read. Um, and it's this, it had, they had this long, um, multi, multi, uh, article series on, uh, AI risk. And, um, the idea is basically that, you know, artificial intelligence, like intelligence itself might be totally orthogonal to morality. Like it might be unrelated to, un to morality. Interesting. So that something, so that an intelligence that learns to, learns to learn really quickly and connects to the internet and gets all of its knowledge um, can bootstrap its intelligence really fast, maybe overnight. And it might look like a really smart spider <laughs> that cares about humans about just as much. Yeah. Right. And so I worried about this for like, you know, a good two years. Yeah. Like, um, and I got really paranoid about it and it's kind of embarrassing. I yeah. still sound like a crazy person today when I talk about what I do for work. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't sound like quite as much of a crazy person now. Um, I, I think it's worth worrying about. Um, and it's worth spending more resources, more resources than we currently are gotcha. on it. And people who are 
people who think they can achieve something in that it to mitigate that risk should absolutely go for it. Yeah. Um, like my, I have a friend uh, who is currently, uh, they he just got accepted this week to something called an EA hotel, an effective oh, cool. yeah. hotel, um, where he can go and spend six months stead like um, like doing experiments on AI safety. Isn't that cool? That's yeah. cool. And I think that's great. Um, what makes me like less worried nowadays is just uh, I'm starting to. Well, one, I'm starting to wonder if the problem is solvable, <laughs> for one thing. Interesting. Um, which kind of maybe takes the stress off. Another thing is that um, is that maybe intelligence isn't orthogonal to morality after all. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of my hope. I mean, I have moved on from a Christian worldview that I was raised in. Yeah. Um, oh, I, you're actually a Christian, aren't you? Yes, I'm uh, Quaker. Okay, sweet. Well, so, yeah, so what I was saying was... I. I've moved on from my Christian upbringing um, beyond a beyond that conception of right and wrong, um, but I do believe that there. I, I am a moral realist, and I think that interesting. I think that just like just like math is a thing that exists. Yeah. Um, you know, even even though you know our system of math is just one contingency in right, theory. Right. You know, I think that I think it exists, and an intelligence that was. That, that had overtaken human intelligence it's i think it's plausible that it would at least along the way um integrate what we consider to be right and wrong and at least develop from there interesting um so i i'm not i'm not as sold on it being just a big spider <laughs> yeah exactly i i think that makes sense and i, I think it, it, another another thing to think about is that you know people will build it and so it'll probably end of the day, people are, you know, people are deeply flawed and they're good and they're bad. And like, it'll probably end up something like that too. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I've just admitted that I basically, I basically have let myself off the hook a little bit because I used <laughs> to have nightmares about this kind of thing. Right. And I don't recommend yeah. that other people let themselves off the hook if they're really worried about it. You right. Know, talk, talk to other people about it, of course, but yeah. Um, and like really reason about it. Um, it's just, um, if it's if it's something worth worrying about, then we should do what we can. Um, but probably we shouldn't try to make a slave out of AI because I don't think it'll I don't think it'll work. No, but yeah, that's a good point. I think that like I think that at the very it'll just be a stopgap like that kind of safety yeah. approach. And alignment probably has to do with um, it probably has to do with discovering something fundamental about mathematics. Right. That, 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 man, that's super interesting. Yeah. I, I, and I'm also of the opinion there's another risk I think people don't talk about when they talk about AI safety. Mm. And it's that AI just never happens because we keep pumping the brakes because we're worried about AI safety. Like there's some, <laughs> some balance there. And yeah, there's so few. approaching it. Yeah, exactly. There's some, there's so few sources of growth in our economy now. And, mm. you know, if we slam the brakes on information technology, it's like what's left. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Know. Yeah. And that's a, you know, that's part of my thinking on that's, that's part of what motivates me um, with respect to governments as well. It's just that like government governments are manifestly slowing um, innovation in a lot of sectors. Definitely. Um, I don't know. They're, 
I shouldn't really get into that honestly because it because there's there's two stories there like one is which one in which technology is outrunning government right and this is the libertarian um, perspective on it cryptocurrency yeah. is 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 innovating faster than it can be regulated on the other hand it's holding back all these other sectors and if economic growth like continues to stagnate we probably we like, we might not have um, you know the uh, we might not reach escape velocity right, yeah. as a civilization you end up at some feudal wackiness. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Coop, thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you, you would like to add anywhere you'd like to send people any cool resources? Uh, cool resources. Um, yeah, I would say if you're, if you're, um, if anyone listening is, um, you know, hating their job and feeling like they have <laughs> a dead end, yeah. you know, um, consider becoming a web developer at Lambda school because, um, their data science program is great. It's, but it's not for everybody and it's still, you know, it's still a work in progress. Yeah. I would say their web development program is second to none and it's Very just, nice. it's just amazing. And, um, you can, you know, you can have a future if you just start That's there. Really cool. Um, so I highly recommend that. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's about all I have to say. Where can people find your stuff? Should they try and find your stuff? I have one crappy little blog that I don't put anything on. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that's about it. I mean, just keep Googling Cooper Williams podcast and maybe you'll see something else interesting. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on again. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Kip. This has been fun. Awesome. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.